I grew up in a big family, so we had nine kids in our house. We lived on what I would consider a subsistence farm. By the time I was five, just before I started kindergarten, he had sort of already targeted me as a person that he thought he could begin grooming for future sexual encounters. My father invited me into the barn that was on our property under the guise of going to see some owls. Instead of finding owls, we found something else. After she took him back in, I decided that really my only actions could be preparation for future. I stopped thinking that we were ever going to get away from this or that there was ever going to be a rescue of any kind. I decided that that was a, a child's dream. And so instead I started to think about, okay, I just have to get through these next five years. So that was what I did. Numerous studies reveal that sexual abuse is rampant and the scars of betrayal go deep. In this transparent interview, Sharon Betters, Executive Director of Mark Inc. Ministries, interviews Dr. Terry Eccles, who shares her own story of repeated abuse by her father and how she is finding freedom from the past. Sexual abuse is a difficult life crisis to tackle because each person's story is unique to them. Yet, there are also common denominators that abused people immediately recognize as scars similar to their own. This is one woman's story. We hope her journey will encourage you to realize there is help and hope, even in the darkness of sexual abuse. It's, it's such an honor for me today to be in the studio with Dr. Terry Eccles, a pediatrician who has a practice in Connecticut. And we are going to be talking about a very painful and difficult life crises. We're going to be talking about sexual abuse. It's a very complicated, multifaceted issue. And you have to have someone who's really ready and desiring to share their story in order to help others. And often this kind of abuse results in such broken people that it's difficult for them to come to that point. We're here in the studio with Dr. Terry Eccles, and I am so honored and privileged that, Terry, you are trusting us with your story. We are on holy ground, I know it, and we are praying for those already who will listen to this, that God will use your story to offer the help and hope that only comes through knowing Jesus. Terry, tell me a little bit about your uh, life, a uh, little bit about your background, how you have come to this point. How did you become a doctor? I grew up in a big family, so we had nine kids in our house. We lived on what I would consider a subsistence farm. So most of our life came from the ground. We either grew it or we had animals to provide it. And we were very poor. My dad was an alcoholic, and he mostly worked factory jobs when he had a job. So we spent most of our time figuring out how to live on very minimal money. My mother was very good at that and very crafty. I think we did what we could to get by, but there was never any expectation that any of us would go to college or that there would be any money to do anything like that. I certainly know that I got a lot of resistance from family members and friends who would say, what would you like to do when you get older? And then I would say that um, I, I'm going to be a doctor. Oh, I don't think so. So 
it happened that along the way, there was certainly a lot of abuse in our household. But through all the providence of God, there were other things provided. And while my mother did not have money to send me to college, eventually it worked out that I was able to get a full scholarship and did four years of college with no money spent. And then went to medical school, again, partially on scholarship, finished with a medical degree and went to a residency for pediatrics. And here I am. It's amazing. You made two very interesting comments that almost seem to be the opposite. One is that you grew up in a household where there was a lot of abuse, and two, that God was providential in making a way for you. So we're going to talk about that because I think that those who have experienced abuse, some would find it difficult to understand how you could be declaring that you experienced God's good providence even in the middle of an abusive home. So let's talk about that home and uh, the abuse that you experienced. When did it start? Who was the victimizer? And I want to be real clear as we're talking that when we talk about sexual abuse, that we know that there are all different kinds of sexual abuse. Uh, some studies say that one in three women have experienced abuse. Others say one in five. And we're not saying today that every woman who has experienced abuse has experienced it to the depth and degree that Terry has experienced it. But we know that many have. You're right. Not everyone will have experience this to the same degree that I did, but many will have been much worse. I don't propose to think that I have suffered the greatest that there is. I have certainly spoken to women who have suffered much more. We want to be clear that we're not just talking about abuse as inappropriate behavior. We're talking about abuse as criminal behavior. Our culture is finally uh, addressing the criminality of this behavior and this abuse against children. We know that it's rampant, and we're hoping that this resource will not only tell Terry's story in a way that offers help to the abused, but will also offer a platform for helping us to rescue children before the abuse. So tell our listeners about that abuse and what it was like to live in your home. My situation really came out of what I believe to be my father's acting on his learned behavior. He was a man who came from a family where his mother had been a prostitute. And he had one brother that he knew of. Uh, and he and his brother were raised by their grandmother because his mother early on had gotten sick. She died from TB. He lived in a house with his mother and his brother for a long time. It is conceivable that he may have been the product of one of her, we'll say John's, I suppose. Whatever he learned, whatever he saw, whatever was part of his life, I think influenced his future actions. But for whatever reason, and I don't say that to give him excuses, but more to say that none of us are what we are independently. So we all come to where we are because we're part of other people. His experiences led him to be what he was. And by the time I was five, just before I started kindergarten, he had sort of already targeted me as a person that he thought he could begin grooming for future sexual encounters. So at five was the first time that I can remember that we had any encounter where I thought that something was wrong. Certainly he was loud and he was abusive to my mother and he was cruel in other ways. But on that one instance, he had taken me into the barn that was behind our house. And I, I won't give you all the details, but in about a 10 minute activity, had started touching me in a very personal, private way that even though I 
could not have explained to you as abuse I knew was wrong and certainly was very uncomfortable with. And after that, you know, every year, every day, things were more involved. They were more significant. I had my first actual sexual intercourse with him about eight and a half or nine years old. And then that continued up until 13 when I actually was able to say to my mother what was happening. And then after that, because he did not leave our house, there were no more intercourse episodes, but there was continued touching and intentional manipulation of parts. You uh, talk about, uh, you just mentioned that you told your mother when you were about how old? 13. When When you were 13. In your book, you describe that episode. And I, I think uh, it touches on so many aspects of your story. I'd like for you to read that, if you would, right from your book. Sure. Suddenly, I was a part of the trees around me. I was unfeeling and unreachable. My mind soared in the treetops with the birds. Eventually, the heavy breathing and thrusting ended, and I was reuni- reunited with the aching between my legs and the warm, thick liquid making its way down my inner thighs and staining my shorts. He let me go, and I ran, fast, faster, and the more I ran, the more I knew I needed to tell my mother. She can help. She loves me, I think. As I approached the house, I could see my mother outside in the yard hanging out clothes to dry. She looked up and caught my eye, and there was a silent understanding. This is serious. She walked over to me and asked me what was wrong. Without thinking, I blurted out, Your husband just forced his pecker into me. She did not doubt. She did not question the truth in that awful statement. Instead, she said, Doesn't he know he could get you pregnant? A flood of thoughts overran the banks of my brain and swirled together in chaos. She believes me. She will protect me. It's going to be over now. She knew. Maybe she suspected. Why didn't she do something sooner? Pregnant? I can't be pregnant. His baby? What would people say? How would I be able to finish school? She believes me. I need to clean this blood off me. I need to stop the ache between my legs. She believes me. He's going to be angry. And he was. He returned to the house the same way I had, and my mother walked over to meet him as he emerged from between the tall stalks of corn in the field. Immediately she confronted him. How dare you touch her? Did you want to get her pregnant? Almost as immediately he responded with, I never touched her. Whatever she told you was a lie. All the while his eyes were darting back and forth between the two of us. Then the explosion. His fury became action, and he slapped her across the face and grabbed her by the hair and threw her to the ground. There was a sick, soft, dull thud with each kick to her abdomen and back and legs. I screamed in horror for him to stop, and he began to hit me slapping me on the arms, legs, and face, and then pelting my back with his belt. The fight moved inside the house, where he began to break dishes and glasses and anything else he could find. He started beating her again as she tried to clean up the mess and begged him to stop. Again, he punched me in the jaw and grabbed me and threw me onto the couch. My mother put herself between us and took his wrath on her. The other children hiding outside to wait out the storm, watched as I emerged from the house as a soldier from a battlefield. Slowly and with determination, I walked out our driveway and onto the road and just kept walking. Anywhere, nowhere, wherever the road was going. 
Cars passed my bruised and bloody body, loosely covered with torn clothing. No one stopped. No one slowed down. No one cared. Eventually, one of my older brothers drove up in his truck and told me to get in. I did, and he drove a few miles to his girlfriend's house. There in this stranger's front yard, the two of them stood talking for what seemed like hours, but was probably closer to ten minutes. She would occasionally lean to her left to look around him as she faced him, to sneak a glance at the horror on the other side of the windshield. So there it was, no help to be had by strangers passing by on the road, and none by this curious Barbie doll. Alone, in a rusty yellow pickup, in a bruised and aching body, in a confused and ever more increasingly walled-off mind. As my brother got back in the truck, it was as if nothing had happened. He spoke and acted in a business-as-usual manner and drove home. When we turned into the driveway, my dread and fear were replaced by quiet rejoicing and hope. No car. My father was gone. He had apparently said he wasn't coming back. Could that be true? Was it over? As if talking about the traumatic events of that day, or speaking his name, would cause him to reappear, everyone was quiet. Dinner time with eight kids packed around a small table was quiet. No sudden moves, no loud banter, no arguing over who got the last piece of fried chicken. Just forks clinking on plates, like a metronome, setting the tone for the evening and the occasional whispered request to pass something. The loudest noise in the house was the pounding in my head. After dinner, everyone played quietly and without arguing, something that my mother had requested of us many times, but that we were never able to achieve. The house itself seemed somber, the lights seemed dimmer, and the air felt heavier. Still, he did not return. Still, I hoped in silence that my dreams of rescue had come true. The silence in the house the next day hung heavy like a thick fog that settles in every crack and crevice. It diffused the daylight and made everything feel dull and damp. Then, suddenly, the quiet was broken by a sound. The phone that hung on the wall in the kitchen was clattering for attention. I strained to hear every word from my mother's mouth. First, concern. Are you okay? Then, acceptance. Okay, I'll send one of the boys. It was over. No more quiet peace. No more help. No more dreams of rescue. I was exhausted physically and mentally, having climbed the mountain looking for a lush green valley on the other side, only to find a sharp, steep drop-off into a rocky ravine. There had been disappointments before, but this was the worst. She was going to take him back. I did it. I told her. I know she believed me and she was going to let him come home. Later that day, he stumbled as my brother supported him on one shoulder and led him into the house and into my parents' bedroom. There he stayed for 48 hours, vomiting into a plastic ice cream bucket, passing foul-smelling diarrhea in the sheets on, and on the floor, and sleeping off his drunkenness. All the while she cared for him. All the while she became a stranger to me. I couldn't look her in the eye. There was a vacant resignation there, like a dark veil hiding the woman I thought loved me. Now I wasn't so sure. Had she really ever loved me? Was I actually lovable? She must not love me or she would help me. He must not love me or he wouldn't hurt me. What was wrong with me that made me so unlovable? It had to be me that was the problem because my brothers and sisters seemed to be doing just fine. When he regained his strength after his drinking binge, my father took me outside on the porch and laid down the ground rules. He said that I had stabbed my mother in the back by telling her those things, and that I had caused all of her pain. He said that he could have helped me in many ways, and he could have made my life easy, 
But now I had put an end to that. He would now do everything he could to make my life hard. He would never help me with anything. I wasn't aware that this represented a change from the previous situation. Still, I accepted what he said like a criminal accepting a sentence imposed by a judge. We were going to coexist in this house, and he had promised my mother that he was never going to be alone with me again. That was my mother's compromise. That was my sentence. That is such a powerful portrayal. And every time I hear it and read it, I imagine a 13-year-old girl. And I think that's what you have to do when you hear something like this. It's not you, the doctor. It's that 13-year-old child who was so desperately alone. And I think it's important for um, people to understand the depth of the pain so that they can see the, the absolute uh, glory of the redemption in your life. So you've told your mother, now that relationship is absolutely broken. You are in a house of people who, as you've described in your book, some of your younger siblings blamed you for destroying their home because they didn't get it. No one else knew what had happened. Your mother didn't tell your siblings what your father had done. And so you are now the target of, you're the one who's caused all the problems in the family. So what did you do? What was your response to this uh, horrifying moment in your life? After she took him back in, I decided that really my only actions could be preparation for future. I stopped thinking that we were ever going to get away from this or that there was ever going to be a rescue of any kind. Um, I decided that that was a, a child's dream. And so instead, I started to think about, okay, I just have to get through these next five years. When I get done high school, I can leave here and never come back. And I don't have to talk to these people again. I don't have to see any of these people. And I'll just get away. And so that was what I did. I just focused on schoolwork and doing what I could to to be sure that I was going to be able to get somewhere. And along the way, I invested a lot of time in trying to protect my siblings from what I thought I could. I don't think there really was very much protecting that happened. More it was a hope to protect them. There certainly were times when I was able to come between them and my father. And after he had returned to our house that day, there was a different dynamic between us. He never was brave enough to attempt a situation of intercourse with me again, which could have happened because there were days that could have occurred. He was nervous to some degree because I had said something and I think it had planted the seed that maybe he wasn't completely in control. I didn't understand that at the time. So there were instances where he would try to exert his control over me by walking by and touching my breasts or running his hand up between my legs or, you know, something just to make sure that I understood he was still in control. But if something was happening or something had happened that one of my siblings was involved with and I stepped in and tried to take responsibility for that, it would definitely save them because if he thought I was responsible, he would let them go. But he never did hit me again after that. He was afraid to fully exert his power over me. So while I didn't recognize that at the time, I can see now that he had already started to lose some of his power. It didn't feel like it to a kid. Terry, 
why didn't you go to another adult? Why didn't you talk to somebody at school, a neighbor, somebody at church? You, you described that you're involved at the church. You went to church every Sunday. I mean, looking back, why, why didn't you ask for help from somebody else? I didn't think I could. If my mother didn't think this was so bad, then I thought maybe other people wouldn't think it was so bad either, and they would just think I was complaining. We were fairly isolated from people. We went to church. I went to school, you know, but we did not have relationships with any of these people outside of those events. And I didn't really feel like I could talk to them about anything more than surface matters. There, there wasn't a sense that I had a real champion in any of those people. They were just people that we knew. My mother also made it very clear to me that this was something to be handled within the house, that you were not to air your dirty laundry in public. I think I took that to heart. And I, I really, I thought it was too late for me. I thought the damage is done. You're not going to undo this. So just tough it out and it'll be over sometime. And that's where I ended up. I remember reading a story a long time ago about a judge who said that when he would have abused children in front of him and he would ask, would you like to go, you get to choose where you're going to go. You can go to this foster home or you can go back with your abusive parents. And he said he was shocked by how many times the child would say, I want to go home. And his conclusion was because that was familiar to them. That's all they knew. The idea of going somewhere different was more terrifying than going back to the abuse. Do you resonate with that? Do you think that's a true conclusion? Yes, I write about it in my book. It's very scary to think that you're going to have to do things in a different way than you have, that you're going to have to live in a different way than you know. Even if it's bad, it's what you know. It's what you're comfortable with. And even though it is bad, some of it's good. And that's the other part that's the draw. It's the, it's the reason it's easy to stay, because even in a house where the most horrific things are happening, there are good things. There are birthdays and baseball in the side yard and all those things that kids enjoy. And it's not every minute of every day where you feel like it's total desperation. It's normalcy, as much as you can say that word, punctuated by these terrible events. And so it's easy to convince yourself that it's worth sticking it out through those times to have the rest of it with people that you know, in a place that you know, with rules that you understand. So you're 13 years old, and you know that there's not going to be any rescue from the people that should be protecting you and caring for you. And you do describe how, uh, how much you loved your mother and how much you appreciated her, especially as you got older and you looked back over how she cared for you. But now you're, you're still a child. In my eyes, you're a child who's, who now has to be a grown-up and take care of herself. So you throw yourself into school. As you uh, become that student who would be the top student in her graduating class, what happened along the way that gave you the courage and the hope that it was time to try again to report your father? Probably a combination of events. Going through the process of deciding that I'm never going to get out of this, or worse yet, that maybe I'm not worth rescuing from this, the only way a person can say that that's really the case is if you're only ever in this prison that's been built around you. And this is where it's so important about the people who interact with you from the outside. 
because if I didn't ever get outside those prison walls, if I didn't ever meet other people who lived in different ways and thought different things, then I would still think that what was happening to me was acceptable. Not okay, but acceptable. So there were multiple things that led me to be able to report. As I got older, I started taking on a lot of babysitting jobs. So I was in different houses. I saw how a lot of different people lived. And they were, none of those were like what I knew. They weren't all the same. And that was interesting information, too, that not every one of these houses had people who lived life the exact same way, but they were all different than mine. And from what I could tell, they didn't involve intentionally hurting your children. So there was this knowledge that I started to have that some adults might be trustworthy and some of them might have your best interest in mind. And so maybe some of them can be trusted. And I think I just sort of tucked that away and held on to it for a while. And then by the time I was 16, I noticed that my father was looking at my youngest sister in a very peculiar way. And I recognized something in that look. And I thought, well, I certainly can't let that happen to her. And that's where that bit of courage came from, I think. I had learned that background knowledge that some people could be trusted and that some people really did seem to have children's best interest in mind. So that when it came to this point of my seeing that she could possibly be starting to walk the same road that I was, it seemed okay to think that maybe I could do something, but it would have to be done outside the house with some of these people that didn't live with us. And that's why I was able to eventually make that report. And who did you report it to? One of my teachers. Throughout your story, and I hope that many of our listeners will get your book so that they can get the background, but you do talk about some of the teachers, how important those relationships were, the school nurse, uh, particular teachers that you began to kind of test the waters as to whether or not they were going to be trustworthy, and uh, the great responsibility, but also privilege that grownups have to be on the alert to be sensitive, and to become a safe place for a wounded child. And so thankfully, there were people in your life that loved you and cared for you and took seriously the responsibility for helping you, for rescuing you. So you reported this, and there was an immediate response by the authorities. What happened next? They sent some detectives to my school, and they took down my story for what I was able to verbally give them. And then they asked if I had anything that could corroborate what I was saying. Could I put dates or times or other things together that would make it more clear that I hadn't just invented these stories? And of course I did. I had been writing things down. And so I'd brought with me a couple of notebooks where I'd been putting in dates and things that had happened. And so I had given them those pieces of information. And it made it very easy for them to quickly know that what I was saying was real. Why did you do that? Why did you write things down? It was the only way that I could deal with it. I didn't have anybody I could talk to about it. And if you just keep that all in, it's poisonous. But if you can even write it, even if no one else ever hears it, if you just write it, it gets it out somewhere. And in writing, I process. 
everybody has their own way of dealing with things. Not everyone writes. Some people call their girlfriend on the phone or whatever it is. But and and I certainly do process through conversation that's happened many many times in my life. Um, but if I can't get conversation, writing is an adequate means for me. And as I wrote those events down all along, it seemed important to me to keep it. And I don't know why. I suspect that was the Holy Spirit's doing. It just seemed like the right thing. So you have reported this. The detectives believe your story. Your father is arrested. Long story short, your father is sent to prison. Um, you try to live at home. Uh, you were, there were people in your life who opened up their homes to you and gave you a place of safety temporarily, but there's still a hunger in your heart for home. And uh, you try to live at home, but eventually you convince your mother to help you find a foster home to get out of the house. And your mother finally agrees that she's going to sign over her parental rights um, with, at your request. That is huge that you went through that process. And I want, I want our listeners to remember we're talking about a teenager. We're talking about a high school student who had to be the grown-up. I mean, even in this moment, I see this is an emotional uh, thought for you. Can you talk about it? When I, first, when I first reported, they'd asked me to stay with a friend. That didn't go very well. So I was there for a couple of weeks. Luckily, after that, one of the families I'd been babysitting for, which really, I think their influence on me was probably greatest in terms of the idea of starting to form a, a mental barometer by which you can measure people. They allowed me to stay with them for a little while, and then eventually I went back home. And yes, it was difficult. My mother could not get over the fact that I had publicly disgraced her. That is where this was for her. It wasn't about what happened. It was about that I had made it known to other people outside our house. And I really had a hard time dealing with just trying to get into the day-to-day and do the normal things, go to school and brush your teeth and cut the grass and all those things. And meantime, I'm trying to deal with all of these things that are now coming out. And, and I have various people in my mind. I, I have social workers and police people and all of my other supports who are asking me if I'm okay. And, and I'm really not okay. And I, I wanted to get into counseling. And that was really the breaking point for us because my mother refused the idea of counseling. She thought that was a terrible idea that a person should never talk to a stranger about something that was happening in your house. Because we didn't agree on the counseling piece, I ended up asking the people that I had been babysitting for uh, if they could help me out. And they helped find a wonderful Christian counselor and then transported me. And that is no small feat. It was. 25, 30 minute ride one way. And we, in the beginning, were going twice a week for a long time. And then eventually that went to once a week. And then, you know, eventually we went to about once a month and things kind of were a little easier, but that's a lot of time invested. Uh, It's a lot of gas money and, you know, effort that really, I mean, I, I don't belong to their family, but they're willing to do this for me. And It was there one of the people or two of the people that you think about when you think about the concept of a kid realizing they have some sort of champion 
outside their home. When things got too bad between my mom and me because we just couldn't see eye to eye, I didn't tell her that I was going to leave. I was not brave enough to do that. I approached my DCF worker and told her that I needed to go, and she gave me some options. I actually went to the school nurse and said that I was looking for a place to go, and she sort of carefully directed me toward a few different people, and I met with them and interviewed them and selected a place to live, and I stayed there for my last year of high school before I went off to college. When you were living at home and your mother was felt so much shame in the humiliation, did you have any empathy for her? Did you feel bad that you had caused her this kind of embarrassment? Did you feel, you know, like, well, I'm so, so sorry, mom, that I hurt you this way? Was there any kind of that uh, feelings toward her? I wish I did, but I did not. I was angry and she knew it. It was part of the reason that it was time to go. We could not speak civilly. She wanted to go back to the idea of this sort of perfect mother-daughter relationship where she's the protector and caregiver and I'm the loving daughter who's going to respond kindly to those things. And I couldn't do that. I didn't see her as that. And I felt that she had failed me and I, I did not treat her well. I was intentionally hurtful in the way I spoke to her and dealt with her. Those are days I wish I could take back, but no, I was not kind. Terry, just imagining you in that barn with your father and him violating you that way is almost beyond comprehension. It's hard to get that picture out of my head. You're a little, you're a tiny little girl. What happened over the next few years that didn't send you screaming to somebody, to your mother, to, a, to a, a sibling, to a Sunday school teacher. How did your father control you and manipulate you? Part of the manipulation came easy because, as I mentioned, he was very physically violent with all of us, my mother and the kids. If he said to you, don't tell anybody, because if you do, I'm going to do whatever threat he put out, we knew that was really true. When I was little, the threats were more emotional-based. I was a people-pleaser kid, very eager to do what I could to gain favor with someone. And I think that can be a good attribute and a bad attribute, depending on who is exploiting it. And he used that to his favor. Over time, as I got older and he was progressing in how much and how often he was violating me. The threats were different. It became sometimes very physical. If you say something, I'll break your arm. Or if you say something, I'll shoot you. So those threats were very real to me. He didn't have to go very far to convince me that he meant business, that if I did do this thing, if I revealed anything about what was happening, there would be serious physical consequences. And not just for myself for everybody else in our household. It kept me from saying anything. And all the time, he's grooming me. He's setting this stage where every time he touches me, every time he takes me somewhere to get me away from the house so he can be in a private location to do whatever he wants, he's teaching me one more time, I'm not worth anybody taking care of. 
One of the things that I have thought often as I've listened to you tell your story and also when I've read your book is you describe pleading with God for him to rescue you. You describe how there was a time where you just completely gave up on any thought of rescue. And yet now, as you look back, you have clearly stated in your book and in our conversations that you feel as though the Lord was with you all the time. How can you think that? when you also have been seared with this perverted behavior from your father? Well, if you ask me, how can this happen? Which is really what you're saying. And if it happens, then where is God when it happens? The only answer I can give is that God is God. He is master over heaven and earth and even hell. So if I imagine that something happened to me, that he was either unaware of or did not have control over, then he is not God. So since he is, and I know that, then I know he had control. And this is the piece that I think when you're a kid and when you're in the middle of it, you can't see that. And I begged God because to me at that age, he was the giver of good things. He was, you know, sort of like a a, a Santa Claus with rules. and you know, as a kid, I don't think you understand necessarily that sometimes the right answer is no. When you're a parent and you have kids, you can't always do what they want. You can't always give them what makes them happy or what makes them feel good at that moment, even though you know it really would make them feel good. If he's a God and he's all powerful and he's worried about more than just me, he's worried about everybody, then I have to trust that his plan is perfect. If I look at it now and I can look at what happened in my house and with all things that have ever happened to me, I can say to you that there was more good to be accomplished by having had that happen to me than there has been bad. And it takes a long time to get to that point, to be able to see that and say that. But if you look at all of the events that I was involved in and all of the things that my father did to me, I never had any serious injury. I never was given any terrible diseases that certainly could have been a possibility. I never became pregnant. I certainly suffered at his hands. That's true. But none of the worst consequences that could have happened, including death, came my way. That's the protection. That's where you can say God was there. I don't believe that you can take a lot of trite sayings and put much belief into them, but I've heard people say that God does not protect you from what he can perfect you through. And I think that's true in this situation for me. I think I was given a certain set of skills that he knew I would need to survive. And he was there orchestrating all the time the various different people who rose up in my life to be those champions and defenders and all those great words. There's no other way to look at the path that I have been on and see anything else. Part one of this intense interview paints a picture of betrayal and eventual freedom. In part two, Dr. Eccles shares how God is redeeming the pain of her past and giving her purpose and joy in her everyday life. Terry, I think about your passion 
for protecting children now. Describe how you see God using your life story in a a way that is impacting others for good. It isn't even just the story. He uses the story and he will use the story because people will read it and they will learn something, either about themselves or about a neighbor or a friend. And maybe they'll get involved and maybe they'll do something. But more he's going to use that I was able to. I have a, the perfect privilege of having a pediatric practice, which means that I spend my days with children, children and families. And I have many, many people that I get to have some sort of influence over what happens in their life to whatever degree they will allow. And I use these things that I knew, that I felt, that I wish someone said to me or that I wish someone had done for me to try to improve what's happening for all of those people who cross my path. I don't want to think that there would ever be a kid who would come through my office who would not hear that message of you're important, someone cares about you, and these things are not okay ever. And if they ever happen to you, not only is it okay to tell, but you should tell and you must tell. And when you tell, I will believe you. And what about their parents? How do you educate children in this way in your practice? I mean, you're a busy doctor. You only have a a certain amount of time with your patients. How can you be intentional? How are you intentional in equipping children and their parents? I educate them together. So when I have a conversation with kids, it depends on how old they are, how that sounds. But I have a, a routine set of things that I go through starting at three. So at three, I say to the parent, this is a time that you need to start talking to your kids and make sure that they understand what parts of their body are private. They need to know appropriate names for boy parts and girl parts. And you should start talking to them about a list of people that you think it's okay to look at and touch their private parts. And at four, I start a discussion with the kids. So usually four, five, and six, definitely four and five, when they're here you're in our office for a checkup. I spend five or 10 minutes, however long that takes with them, and go over what sounds like a laundry list of safety for them so that it doesn't come out as this odd thing that she just threw out at me. We start with, what do you have to do to be safe in a car? And we talk about seatbelts and car seats. And then we talk about parking lot safety. And then we talk about what do you do if you're outside and someone approaches you and wants you to come with them. And then we talk about Did you know that some of the parts on your body are private? And if they are unaware or just embarrassed enough not to say, then we go further with that discussion, you know, and we talk about how do you know what's private? So I define that for them. Private means it belongs just to you. And then I ask them, you know, have you ever been swimming before? Yes. Okay. Did you wear a bathing suit? Yes. Well, why do you have to wear a bathing suit when you go swimming? I don't know. (laughs) Well, can you go swimming naked? No. Why not? I don't know. So then I say to them, you don't go naked because that way the people that you're swimming with can't see your private parts. So then we now have a definition of what's private. Private is covered by your bathing suit. So then we talk about if you're a boy, you have two private parts. And if you're a girl, you have three. 
And that's as far as that discussion goes with them. I don't make it very weighty. And then I make sure they understand that because they're private, only certain people get to look at them and touch them. So only you, because they're yours and you have to keep them clean. And then we talk to mom or dad or whoever's there with the kid and find out who those allowed adults are in their life. So we'll define them right then and there for each individual kid. So for some people, that might just be mom. For some, it's going to be mom, dad, and grandma or whoever it is. And then we clearly lay that out. So then I repeated it again. All right, now in the whole world, the only people that get to look at or touch your private parts are, and we talk about it, and they only get to look at or touch if they're helping you to get cleaned up or helping you get dressed, or if you've been injured and you need to show it to them. I don't give blanket rules for you can touch, even to your parents. I don't care. There are some times that that's okay, and sometimes it's not. I think that's a very good point, because your father was the one who was touching you, and so you have to be specific about the purpose in the touching, too. One study that I read said that children are most vulnerable to sexual abuse between the ages of 7 and 13 years of age. So I can see why starting when they're three is so important and helpful. You also said in your book that children do not see anything sexual about their private parts. To them, it's just another part of the body. So it's such a good time. The parents don't have to be embarrassed. The parents can, can, can learn from you. We're just talking about, like we're talking about washing your hair and brushing your teeth, and this is just part of who you are. So I think that's helpful for parents, too. If they don't have a pediatrician like you, parents who are listening right now hear what uh, Terry is saying about helping to equip your children. What about uh, teenagers? Speak to that teenager right now who is has, who feels uncomfortable, maybe has not experienced everything you've experienced. Maybe they would say, well, it's not that big of a deal, but, but in their hearts, they feel uncomfortable. Uh, what would you say? Let's say you have somebody like that in your office. How would you help that teenager? It's a big deal anytime. That's the first message. And it doesn't matter if it's the first and only time or if it's the 25th time. It's a big deal anytime. And it doesn't matter if it means someone just touched you one time or if you've been part of, you know, repeated terrible abuse. It's always important. And it's important because God made you. That means you're important. And if you're important, then anything that happens to you is important. It's important to me. It's important to him. So we need to make sure that you are well cared for. I draw lines for my teens about what's okay and what's not okay. And they understand from me very clearly that I feel like there are some things that should never, ever be allowed. No one gets to be physically harmful to you. No one gets to force you into any kind of sexual activity. It's just not all right. Anytime I suspect with a teenager or they've come to me and said that something has happened, my first response to them is how sorry I am for them. And then my second is, what can I do for you? It's going to be different for everybody. And none of them answer that question the same because we all have different experiences, different families, different thoughts and needs. Inevitably, if you're willing to put it out there that you're willing to do whatever it takes, you tell me what you need and we will do it. They will trust you and they will come around to, though they may not already have figured it out, they will come around to what it is they need. And then we work out how that's going to happen. Whether that means they're going home with their parents today, 
or we're going to be calling somebody, or they're going to wait in my office and I'm going to have somebody come and talk to them, or what that's going to look like. Um, and I'm, you know, willing to do any and all. Talk to the parent whose child has just told them the neighbor next door did something that made them feel really funny and strange. How should the parents respond to a child's quote unquote confession? or uh, words that they know something bad has happened to my child. If you're that parent, first you're going to want to know exactly what. So I imagine there's going to be a certain amount of questioning. What happened? How did it happen? And that's okay, because you need to have some idea of what they're talking about. But I would say the very next thing needs to be a whole discussion about how incredibly brave this kid is for just having told you this and how happy you are that they've come to you and that you are going to do everything you possibly can to make sure that this is taken care of. And then I would encourage you not to go off and try to fix it yourself. There should be no private arrangements made between you and the neighbor. There should be no sweeping it under the rug. If you say in one breath that you believe them and you want to help take care of this situation, but you do nothing they understand the real message is that either they weren't worth your taking care of or you really didn't care about it in the first place. So you have to be careful that once you've heard it, you act on it. It doesn't matter to me whether you confront the neighbor or not. I would probably recommend not. Your next best step is to call somebody in authority. Go to the police department. Call somebody, a counselor, who can get you hooked up with the right people. Do everything that you can to make sure that your child understands you heard what they said, you believed it, and that you are willing to make it right. How important is that initial response from any adult to that child? I think it's very important because if I think about what my mother did when I first told her, she responded in a way that let me know that she didn't doubt what I said, which meant that she either knew or suspected or that she thought it was okay. But she did immediately confront him. I knew, I understood from that, that she thought it was wrong, but she couldn't follow through. And so she allowed him to come back. So your immediate response is very important because it's going to let your child know whether you're really in their corner or not, but it's weak if you can't follow through. I'm thinking of as a mother, if my five-year-old were to tell me that someone that I trusted had abused them, that my gut response would want to be rage, crying, and this is a five-year-old child in front of me. And I think you addressed this in your book. Your, your thing was children that young do not see this as a sexual thing of shame. And it's very important for the, the adults in their lives that you can minimize the damage that has been done by the way that you respond. It's all in perspective. Parents get very concerned and upset because to us, we understand it to be a sexual crime. Children don't understand that it's sexual. They just know it was wrong. And they either know it was wrong because it made them feel a little weird or they know it was wrong because the person told them to keep it secret. And kids are not stupid. They know that if you're telling them you need to keep this a secret, it was probably not on the up and up. That's something that is innate. So they already know it's a problem. But if you react in a very negative way and 
you allow them to take on a meaning for what happened that they didn't already have, you can be very confusing to them. They don't have a reference for sex. They don't know what that means. They don't understand how that goes. At some point, they will. So even if you're five, and I don't talk to you about this being a sexual crime, I'm just going to tell you that it was wrong, that no one should have looked at or touched your private parts, and we're going to move on from there. The whole point of having continued counseling and checking in periodically over your lifetime is because at some point, that five-year-old is going to be 13 and 18 and 25 with a very significant understanding of what those events were. And they're not going to forget them. And it's going to show up in different ways at different ages. So at five, it is not appropriate to discuss this as a sexual matter. But you are going to have to approach it from that standpoint at some time with somebody. Early, when they're very little, yes, you can minimize some of the damage. And I think this is why people think that if your child is very small when they report, you don't really have to worry about counseling because really they're fine. They don't get it. It's okay. But they're not going to be five forever. You also talk about the importance of counseling, that you went through some good counseling and how difficult it was. And in your book, you talk about the counselor who had such an impact on your life and that you wish that you had kept up counseling through college. And now you're a grown up and you're a doctor and you seem perfectly fine. So why do you consider the need for counseling to continue in your life? Well, I think when you consider that somebody looks fine, you need to consider that that is just the way they look, right? If you had looked into my family when we were kids and you drove by and saw all of my siblings outside playing in the yard, you would not have thought we were not fine. Looks can be deceiving. It takes an awful lot of effort every day to be able to put those pieces behind you. If you don't want to be the victim forever, you have to do something sometime to stop the victim process. Part of that is taking the control away from the abuser. So you have to say something, you have to speak out, and that's part of it. But the other part of not being a victim is recognizing those things that victimize you. Because once you've been a kid who's been in this situation, for the rest of your life, some of those things are going to come into your day-to-day existence. Not necessarily in a threatening way, but they may be unknown to you, triggering some of your past feelings and thoughts and actions. This is why the counseling is so important. You need to be able to learn yourself, to recognize where those things have so deeply injured you or left scars that you need to to be aware of. And and I would just give an example. Everyone's different and and every situation is different. You, You would have your own set of triggers, but my husband bought a shirt couple years ago that went right in the garbage because I cannot see him wear that shirt. It looks too similar to something that I had seen on my father. And my husband is a tall man and his figure reminds me when I see him in that shirt of my dad. Now my dad was not as tall as my husband is, but when you're seven, he seems much taller. And so I think to me, that's one of those things. I have to know about myself that some things are just not going to work for me. I'm never going to be a person who's going to go to the movies with my husband to see a James Bond flick. It's not going to happen. He's welcome to go and take my son and have a great time, and I'll see you when it's over, but I'm not going to be there. And why is that? Because 
James Bond is one of those things that my dad enjoyed. And I connect that in my head. And no matter how much I want to try to take that connection away, I can't. You know, even more than that, some of the most powerful things that can evoke past memories for people are smells. I have certain smells that I just cannot stand to be around. If you don't know these things about yourself and you don't understand why it bothers you or how it affects the choices you're going to make, then you could be in your day-to-day existence every day continually being triggered by things that cause you to either be irritable with other people or to put yourself in a harmful situation or to make a choice either for yourself or for someone else that really is going to have negative consequences. Just because you don't understand what the consequences are of all those events you've already been through. That's why the day-to-day counseling is so important. That's why even though I may be a successful physician and I have a family that is really awesome, I spend time with a counselor. I talk to her on a monthly basis just to check in. It's invaluable to me. Over the years when I've talked with women who have experienced abuse of any kind, not only sexual, but um, parental, uh, physical, emotional, will I'll try to explain to her that she views life through broken lenses and that she needs people in her life to speak truth to her over and over and over again, that she could accept the truth and for the next month or six months say, okay, I see that. I, I get that. Uh, what my brain is telling me isn't really true and I'm working hard to overcome it. But then it slides away. She needs somebody to come alongside that she trusts that empowers to say, this is what the truth is. I know I'm not seeing it. When I was in chemotherapy, I was out of my mind sometimes with my emotions and fears and depression. And I finally came to a point of saying to my husband, you have to tell me what the truth is, because I realize I'm not seeing truth anymore in my life. And so would you say that's a pretty good description of a wounded person? It's kind of like their eyeglasses have been shattered. I agree. And so that kind of counseling, which is hard work and painful, I I would bet it's extremely painful to have to unpack that baggage. Um, But that regular counseling is critical. Uh, When you find someone, how do you find the right kind of counselor? The first counselor that I came to, you know, I'm sure it was divinely inspired. I first went to see my, the pastor at my church, and that lasted for just a very short time before he was able to give us a recommendation for this other person, which is where we ended up. You know, he was an amazing Christian counselor. He'd been counseling for a long time and had lots of experience with people who had been through abuse. All of those things made him the perfect candidate for me. He was very gentle in the way he talked to you. Um, I think that made a big difference for me. But really, I don't know how I came to find him except to say that I think that it was divinely inspired. I was out of counseling for a long time before I found the counselor that I have now, and I came to know of her through a Christian counseling website and had recommended a few patients to see her. I liked what I heard coming back, and so then I ended up calling her to go and visit with her myself. We've had such a great therapeutic relationship that even though she has since moved, I've maintained a relationship with her, you know, uh, through Skype. 
that where there's a will, there's a way. What uh, role does your husband play in your um, healing process, in your everyday life? Does he get involved with the counseling? Was he aware before you were married of all of the experiences that made you what you are? How has this impacted your marriage? The one word answer is, uh, I would say it's impacted my marriage negatively. However, um, there's probably a lot more to that. My husband was aware when we married that there had been child abuse. I actually had given him a lot of what I'd written to read before we ever got married. I think my husband, like a lot of people, didn't want that for me, didn't want that hurt or pain. And uh, his response to that was to say, well, we'll just put that behind us and move on. That really doesn't work very well. He never wanted to speak about that again. There just never was going to be discussion about it. I think I didn't really need him to be a counselor for me. I, didn't, I wasn't looking for him to hash through all of these things with me. But it definitely impacted decisions that we made as a couple. And because he was so quick to dismiss what those events meant to me emotionally and mentally, I very quickly found myself uh, falling into a situation where I allowed him to choose what we did, how we did it, where we went, and just kind of falling into that same pattern of allowing a dominant male to dictate my life. Now, he wasn't harmful in that he wasn't trying to hurt me. It's, I, I don't mean to say that, and he certainly is not a, a physically aggressive person. But definitely it affected our ability to have adult conversation and discussions about things where there was a real give and take. It was mostly if I had a suggestion or a thought or an idea and it didn't match with his, then I automatically gave in to what he wanted. We've worked through a lot of that. He currently sees the same counselor that I do. It's been very helpful for us to understand each other better. What advice would you give to the spouse of a, the, the victim of sexual abuse? I guess number one, take it seriously. And probably number two, understand that because they're telling you they were sexually abused, it does not mean that the effects of that will only be seen in your bedroom. Yes, it's going to affect how your intimacy looks and feels, but it is also about every decision, every word, every argument that's ever going to happen in your house. It's about how you argue. It's about how you interact with each other, what you say all of those things. So it would be well worth it if you're marrying someone or have married someone who's been through this to go to counseling together for a while to start to understand what that mindset means and how you can better help them through this process and yourself. In your experience, I'm sure you've talked with a lot of people who have experienced sexual abuse, married couples. Is it possible to have a healthy sexual relationship in a marriage? when there is abuse in the background? I think it is possible. It would require that same level of caring and counseling that we were just talking about. If you did that from the time you were married and everything, every decision you made came out of careful thought and consideration between you and your spouse and your counselor and you understand better how the other person is going to receive any suggestion that you might make, I think it is totally possible. 
someone coming from a situation of sexual abuse really does crave that wonderful love relationship that we all know is possible. Um, we just have never had that in a safe, truly loving relationship. And I think it is definitely possible. I think it would require work on both people's part. Terry, we can't uh, talk about this without thinking about the broken relationships with your family, your father. Your father went to prison, but he got out. Um, you have multiple siblings who were damaged by all of this chaos. You're not sure of which ones suffered abuse, but it's likely they also suffered abuse. How do you put these pieces together as far as forgiving your father? Is it possible to forgive him? And uh, how, how have you addressed that? I think it's possible to forgive. I have a number of years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, written a letter to my father. I'm really heartfelt that I have forgiven him for what he did and that while I have forgiven him, it's not because I think he's okay. It's because we are the same. And while I would not like to think that I'm anything like him, we are both sinners. And when I accepted Christ as my Savior at 12, that's what I said. I'm a sinner, so I need help. And you're the only place to get that. So if I believe that for myself, then I have to believe that for him too. And I laid that out for him in this letter, that he has a pathway, because he doesn't need just my forgiveness, he needs God's forgiveness. And I don't know if he'll ever accept that. I don't know if he read that and even cared what I wrote. I didn't put a return address on it. I wasn't looking for an answer. I don't need that. And I don't really care whether we ever have any conversation. I just wanted him to know that this many years later, I was able to forgive him. It's required of me in the Bible that I need to forgive anyone who wrongs me. That's a really bitter pill to swallow when you feel like you've been wronged in the most amazingly intense way. But a wrong is a wrong, and I have wronged other people. And if I would like to think that I'm going to be forgiven, I need to extend that to other people. So, yes, you can forgive. Have I forgotten? No. Do I intend to? No. I think that would be silly of me to do that. Um, I don't know where he is. In that, I don't know what his address is. I know what state he lives in. And I'm sure that if I were to encounter him in my day-to-day sometime and just bumped into him on the street, I would be probably very emotional about it. But I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm in danger of that ever happening. I don't think he would ever come looking for me, but I would never say that I would trust him. And I think that's where a lot of people get confused about whether it's okay to forgive somebody for something like this, because forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. And just because I can forgive you doesn't mean I have to forget what happened and trust that you're not going to do that again. I think I've given the example that if you play cards with me and you're a cheater, I can forgive you for cheating, but I am not likely to invite you to my game again because it would be silly for me to trust that you necessarily wouldn't do it again. I think that's the way it is. 
and I'm perfectly fine saying that I have forgiven him. I have forgiven my mother. We've had conversation about it. She was a perfectly wonderful, flawed woman who did the best with the situation she had. When I was a teenager, I couldn't see that. And we had very bitter exchanges. When I got older and I could start to see a little bit from both sides, it was easier to accept that she's going to make her peace with God just like I am. We are really the same, except that I had the the amazing blessings that God has given me to make my life different than hers. But I could have been the same. I could have had the same life she has. I could have had a house full of children and an abusive husband and found myself in a situation where I might have made similar choices. I don't, but only by the grace of God. Terry, you talk about accepting Christ as your Savior, that you knew that you needed to be forgiven. You were only 12 years old. Can you tell us how that happened? I think it was the influence of my church and my Sunday school teachers and just a combination of things. But my mother was a Christian long before that. She had come to Christ right around the time that I was born. She was a a constant influence for us in terms of, you know, prayer and reading the Bible and, and really just making it a part of everyday discussion. And at some point, I suppose my heart was ready, and I actually just went to my mother and asked her if she would pray with me. It seems quite remarkable to me that you embrace a faith in Christ and that you credit God's grace and blessings for where you are today. When you've just described that your mother, you believe, was a Christian, and yet you were in a household that certainly we would not describe as Christian in the way that you were treated and possibly your siblings were also mistreated. How do you explain that, that you have chosen faith in Christ, when even in your own home, you know that you have siblings who are rejecting that same faith. We all have that decision to make, whether you grow up in a house that is abusive or not, whether you grow up in a house where you attend church every Sunday or not. That decision is for every person to make on their own when they get to be old enough to understand the consequences of all those things. So whether we had abuse in our house or not, my siblings and all and I were all going to have to make this decision at some point. The thing that makes it different for me, that makes me able to accept that message of Christ and know that that is for me, is probably because of my mother's example. She definitely was a good Christian woman. She found herself in a situation where she was married to a man before she found Christ, and her interpretation of her faith was that she was to stay with this man forever and ever, regardless. And she felt that that was her her Christian duty to stay in this marriage and make this work, and that maybe in some time he would come to understand what she had done and would accept Christ as his Savior. That never happened that I'm aware of. But she did live that example, and nothing she did or said was false to us. We we knew where she stood with everything, and we understood why she was willing to do what she did. It didn't make sense to me, and that's because my mother, like a lot of people, mixed forgiveness with trust. And she felt that forgiving him over and over was a good idea, and that it was necessary. 
but then she threw trust in there, trust that wasn't warranted. And just because she made a mistake doesn't mean that the faith she had wasn't genuine, and it doesn't mean that she was any less a Christian. All Christians make mistakes. I certainly have. I'm sure everyone does. So if because she made some mistakes and didn't live what appeared to be outwardly the perfect Christian life, I can't allow that to be my excuse to not hear that message, understand it, and accept it for myself. Terry, your story gives so much hope to me personally. And I hope to our listeners that God can turn ashes into beauty, that your conclusion about yourself when you were 13 years old, that there was no hope, that you were worthless, that you were broken and nobody cared, has been transformed into a life that is impacting so many other people and protecting children, equipping parents, and sharing the help and hope that is rooted in your relationship to Jesus Christ. And it's such a privilege for me to know you and to listen as you share your story with that heart for helping others. Your book is just packed with more of your story, but also very practical things that we can do to protect children and to help other women and men who have been abused. And I think we want to make sure that we know that it's not sexual abuse is not just about girls. It's about young men as well. And in this age where we're hearing about um, institutions and churches that have hidden and covered up and protected the abuser, it's so refreshing to hear you boldly and transparently share your story. Uh, Just share with me one more time why you're willing to tell your story and why you've written this book. Well, it's my hope that somebody out there is going to see in what has happened to me something that resonates with them, something that is going to mean something based on the fact that they were either abused themselves or they are closely related to someone who was, or maybe that they work with someone. Could be any number of people who encounter this type of abuse, whether it happened to you or someone that you know. But it is my hope that anybody who is dealing with this in any way will understand that they're not alone. There are many, many other people in this situation. It is not hopeless that because this happened to you it doesn't have to be the end of the world it can be the beginning of something that you can do for somebody else sometimes we find our purpose through those things that are trials that are difficult and if you're willing to look at it and understand that you know we all play a part in this grand story that God is weaving here on earth we just have to be willing to be the part that we've been called to be and to do it the best way we can. So I accept what's happened to me, not because I'm glad that it happened, but because I'm glad that I'm able to use that to help other people, either to prevent what could have happened or to bring it to light early enough that there's not this deep, repeated scarring. And I hope that people understand that this is really, truly a message of hope. There is so much more joy
The entire Mark Inc. Ministries team, along with Dr. Chuck and Sharon Betters, are grateful for Dr. Eccles' willingness to share her story, not only in this interview, but in her book, Hope Blooms After the Storm, Heavenly Love and Encouragement for Those Who Have Suffered. You can purchase this book online or order from any bookstore. Visit us at markinc.org where you will find many more resources that offer help and hope for life crises. Our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library includes interviews on such topics as loss of a loved one, terminal illness, adultery, and many more. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.